politics, the bush and the future of our regions. You're listening to Weatherboard and Iron with Barnaby Joyce and Matt Canavan. Well, welcome back to another episode of Weatherboard and Iron, a podcast here we talk about issues facing Australian politics, uh, hosted by Barnaby Joyce and myself, Senator Matt Canavan. Uh, today we've got a, a different guest though, uh, uh, a Liberal Senator from Victoria, James Patterson. G'day to you, mate. Mate, thank you for having me. That's all right. Well, uh, James uh, uh, is not a national. I'm working on him to come and join the National Party. I don't know if that will happen. Uh, he is really the, the, the I think, the, the, the standard bearer for classical liberalism in this place, uh, uh, a very distinguished political philosophy. So I thought we'd get James on to talk a bit about that. James is really the first person we've talked a bit about non-national party or rural issues, but we want to make sure this is a conversation, a deep conversation about political issues in our country. So it's great to have you here, James. Uh, how long have you been in Parliament? Coming up to four years in March. So, right. mate, really uh, great to have this initiative. I think you're communicating with a whole new audience, and I'm, I'm really pleased to see it. Well, I have been inspired a bit by your former uh, colleagues, the Institute of Public Affairs. I think you, you had a bit of a record with them. They've got a great podcast that I, I went on uh, late last year. So it is a great way of directly communicating with people. Tell us a bit about yourself before you got into politics. That what did you do, and, and why did you why did you do, why did you get here? Like, why why did you want to pursue a political career? Yeah. So as you mentioned, Matt, I my career prior to politics was working for a think tank, a free market think tank in Melbourne called the Institute of Public Affairs, and. I was very happy working there. I was the deputy executive director at the time this opportunity came up in the Senate and I could have foreseen myself staying there because it has all the benefits of politics in that you get to devote yourself to big mm. issues, big mm. ideas, important values debates, but doesn't have some of the costs of politics. There's not <laughs> as much travel, not as yeah. much public scrutiny. But a casual vacancy arose in the Senate uh, from Victoria when Michael Rawlinson decided to retire mm. uh, fairly unexpectedly and I'd been a Liberal Party member for a long time uh, and I had an interest in, in running one day. So I thought I'd better have a crack because I think, as you would know, politics is often a lot about timing and opportunity. Uh, there are plenty of great people who never get here who want to get here because the, the opportunities and the timing just doesn't line up. So I thought I'd better have a go given this opportunity came up. And I was 28 years old at the time, so it was a fairly audacious mm, uh, mm, thing to mm. do. Uh, but ultimately, Liberal Party members in Victoria, through a democratic process with about 450 delegates, selected me over um, other candidates, and, and I filled that vacancy and uh, coming up to four years now. And so you, you would have been one of the youngest members of the Senate, uh, particularly from outside yeah. of politics. I, I am uh, the youngest ever Liberal senator. Right, um, is that right? Uh, okay. at, at 28. Bill yeah. O'Chee um, beats yes. me on the conservative side of yes. politics. Um, a good national man from Queensland, uh, and there are younger Greens and Democrats, yep. but no, no younger Liberal senator, no younger ever Victorian senator, no younger Labor senator. Couldn't be a senator in the US, I don't think, isn't it? The no. age of 35. Uh, I think that's yeah. right. So, yeah. so look, now you, you've made a great contribution here. As I said, you come from a, well, working for the IPA and your background, come from a, a classical liberal tradition. I suppose explain, what is that? What is classical liberalism and, and why... Why do you subscribe to those, those set of views? So I guess taking it in part, classical in recognition that these are not new ideas. Uh, these are ideas that have been around for 100 years and I am just a custodian of those ideas. Um, and I will be for a short time and I hope to pass them on, but they've come from somewhere. Uh, and liberal because fundamentally what motivates me is the freedom of the individual. Uh, I believe that societies work best when individuals are free to make decisions in their own best interest, in their own, in their own lives. Sometimes they make good decisions, 
Sometimes they make bad ones and they learn from it. But the worst societies, I believe, in history shows is ones where individuals have that freedom taken away from them and someone else makes decisions on their behalf, whether that's a central government authority or some other body. Uh, and so that's why I'm a classical mm. liberal. And it goes back to philosophers like John Locke and John Stuart Mill and Frederick Bastiat, who, you know, in, in the 18th century uh, onwards, really started to develop these ideas. I mean, I've always found it strange that we call it classical liberalism, though, because Really, when you talk about those philosophers who were the founding fathers of of this 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 well, what became a political movement or a philosophical movement, um, it's not that old, you know. Mm, like, because right. like, uh, um, when you say classical philosophy and most other things, you're going back to Plato and Socrates, right. and obviously there was a level of democracy in ancient Greek Greece, but there was no real universal set of ideas that said the individual was sovereign that's, in Greece. Like, uh, it was still a very much a class and hierarchical-based society. That's right. And, and you can find threads of this philosophy in, in that era. And, and there's even ancient Chinese philosophers who kind right. of reflect this a little bit. But, but you're right. It's actually quite a modern philosophy in political terms. I think one of the reasons why I use classical liberalism and other people do is a pushback against this uh, left-wing epithet, which is neoliberalism. Uh, which mm. is a, a kind of a totally invented political philosophy that no one else, no one ever describes themselves as a yep. neoliberal. It's only ever used as a negative way. And they think that the, the, the liberalism that we saw for most of the 20th century, which is frankly, um, you know, big government liberalism, mm. is, is the correct form of liberalism and we're a, a perversion of it. Whereas I think we're actually just going back to Adam Smith and John Locke and all the rest. Mm. Mm. Well, um, the, other, the, other, the other point to make here is that, well, I wanted to ask you this question that... Um, while it is a quite a modern invention, there is a little bit of a debate about where this comes from. Uh, uh, um, is, it, is it something that's, in your view, sprung out of the Enlightenment uh, and, 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 and uh, you know, sort of a, it was a uh, flow on from the Renaissance and a re- refining of classical principles, mm. Mm. even though this wasn't really a principle in classical times, but a re- refining of classical philosophy? Or there's the alternative view expressed by by some like Jordan Peterson, John Anderson here locally, is that, that this is really actually an outgrowth of, of Judeo-Christian thought and that you know each man is, is made in God's image. Yep. And, and so while that's a religious, obviously, underpinning, that sort of went through and flowed through Western thought. What, what, do you have a view on that? Uh, I, I do. Um, d- despite being an agnostic myself, I'm very much in the latter camp. Uh, I think it's... You cannot understand the idea, the conception of a person as being an individual, having individual worth, individual value and individual rights, unless you understand it from those Christian origins primarily, uh, where the idea is developed that uh, individuals had equal dignity and equal worth because mm. they were made in, in the image of God and, and made by God. Uh, and, and there's no other uh, religion, major religion, other than, um, as you say, the Judeo um, origins of Christianity as well, that recognises that. Most other religions are collectivist in nature. And don't mm. um, and don't form their values on the basis of, of individuality. So actually, the the modern human rights uh, philosophy that we have, as perverted as it has become, actually traces it back to that Judeo Christian uh, philosophy of the individual. And it was through, particularly the debates about religious freedom in England, mm. uh, when mm. after the split of the church, that started to develop the ideas that people should have their own ideas, that mm. they should be able to form them and hold them, and it was, they had equal value even if they had different beliefs. And that was a really... That religious freedom became freedom of speech and freedom of conscience and freedom of thought. That's actually a very good point. I'm in your camp too, uh, uh, that there, there at least is some foundation in our uh, uh, um, liberal view of individuality 
in modern times, get tracing itself back to those the Judeo-Christian uh, thoughts. Now, obviously, the Enlightenment took it out of a religious context and made it into a into a secular philosophy that has that has transformed the world. Uh, uh, but there's an interesting question: Would it would that have happened without mm. the, the the sort of move to monotheistic religions and and the belief in individual uh, free will? The the other the other um, uh, uh, the, the other point you made is a very good one: that that the English civil wars that then led to the establishment of d- democracy were, were fought largely around the issue of freedom of religion. Yep. Uh, and we've sort of lost that and mm. forgotten about that. And while I'm not going to I'm almost tempted now to segue to a whole other debate about the Religious Freedom Bill. I might not do that. We might have to have another episode on that. Happy but it's sort of strange here that we're now come almost full circle and we at least have some concerns about whether freedom of religion is still permissible mm-hmm. in our society mm-hmm. uh, um, um, when that was actually probably the origins of the, the free and open society we've got. Exactly. And without, as you say, delving too much into that contemporary political debate about a piece of legislation, one of the things that frustrates me so much when we talk about religious freedom is you particularly from the human rights left about the separation of church and state. And mm. they think that the purpose yeah. of the separation of church and state is to protect the state from churches, when in fact... The, it's the origins of it are the complete opposite. Yeah. It's to protect people of faith from the state and to prevent the state imposing either no religion or one religion or preventing people from exercising their religion well, freely. Exactly right. Like Obviously, one of the, the biblical origins of this uh, is, is Jesus' comment that leave it to Caesar, Caesar's and God's gods. But mm. in political terms, this traces its time back to the Bishop of Milan, um, Ambrose, who I think it was Constantine. I might be getting my Roman emperors wrong. But he he condemned an act of a, the Roman emperor, emperor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and in past times the emperor would have said, "Well, that's it, you're yep. you're finished." Um, but it, because Christianity had been established, the emperor had to go seek forgiveness and mm-hmm. and, and basically uh, uh, prostrate himself in front of this this just bishop. That's uh, right. And so it, it, in that case, it was a case of religion being protected from the excesses mm-hmm. of the Roman state, uh, which was clamping down a lot on people. So look. Um, I think the the link here to what we wanted to talk about was, I wanted to ask you, in some respects, liberalism is has, is more successful than it ever has been before. Uh, people are very free in our society today. Um, um, we've passed marriage legislation. Um, there's reform now of drug laws. Uh, 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 compared to 50 or 40, 60 years ago, sort of liberalism has succeeded on the social and cultural front from some respects. But it's a bit of a paradox here that then... Other freedoms, like freedom of religion, mm. uh, seem to be kind of under threat from the very people that were, are otherwise uh, prosecuting a freedom agenda. Yeah, look, I completely agree. And I think that comes down to this uh, perversion of liberalism or this kind of stretching liberalism beyond what it was ever originally intended to be. I, I think at the heart of liberalism has to be pluralism and the acceptance mm. that uh, people have different values, particularly they have different moral values. And that living alongside each other as neighbours and fellow citizens is not a problem so long as we, as we don't seek to impose our values on each other by force or by the state or any other means. And so while I'm very much a big supporter of the way in which the state has generally got out of people's personal lives over the last, uh, let's say, 50 years... Um, what worries me is that, as you say, some of the beneficiaries that some of the people who've been granted freedom through that process are unwilling to uh, extend the same freedom to others. And so while I've always been a supporter of same-sex marriage, I've been a very strong advocate of religious freedom and, and even had a bill on, on that uh, during the marriage debate because I've always feared that in granting the freedom to same-sex couples to allow them to get married, that it would come at the expense mm. of other people, particularly people with traditional religious beliefs uh, in marriage. And there is a very illiberal 
attitude among some of the beneficiaries of this liberalism that it should only be for them and that it shouldn't be for those that they disapprove of. Yeah, and I think like you're seeing that play out in our society uh, often in, in big organisations, whether it's government or corporate Australia, uh, where, where they're almost becoming their own almost dictatorships or repress, mm. repressing freedom and, and not allowing people to have different yep. views. And I should note, you did make up, I should note, uh, uh, we were on different sides of the marriage debate, mm. uh, but you, know, you, you gained a lot of respect in this place for, for having a, a pluralistic view here, that you had a view that marriage legislation should be reformed and opened up uh, to, to homosexuals. But you, you, you also said that, that, well, other views should be accepted. That, that was a pretty rare position in this place. Uh, yeah, I, a, I think it was... A bit of a shame, isn't it? Yeah, I think I was a, I was a caucus of one for a while there, um, a lonely place, but it's not uncommon for a classical liberal to be. <laughs> so, I, I mean, what, 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 what I wanted to ask you, what do you think then of the interaction of this issue we're discussing with the rise of identity politics mm-hmm. that... that that in some respects, those pushing for for the the rights of of, of what's become known as LGBTI people um, have admirable goals of seeking equality and acceptance of differences and diversity. But I've often thought that, given classical liberalism based on the individual, then it's, there's a bit of a paradox here that they're sort of pushing for individual rights, but then people get defined as LGBTI, Correct. which puts them in a certain yeah. box almost. Yeah. Uh, I mean, do you think identity politics is consistent with classical liberalism? Uh, There is no more retrograde, regressive and regrettable development in modern political philosophy than identity politics. It is absolutely toxic. It divides people and it sets them up up to be uh, miserable and have horrible relationships with people who are different to them. It is absolutely toxic. And the reason why it is exactly as you say, it takes people from being individuals, uh, first and foremost, with their own views and values and dignity and worth, and makes them a member of a group and mm. puts makes assumptions about what how they feel, what they think, how they vote, how they should act, and it just takes away that individuality. And it sets people up into competing groups, uh, in particularly in the, in this philosophy of victimhood, um, who is who has been had the greatest wrong done against them historically and who is the most in need of uh, restorative justice. Um, and I, I think it actually, it, it serves all of us badly because it tribalises us and splits us apart, but it particularly serves badly the people who are put in those categories. Uh, they, I don't think that they, they benefit um, as individuals or as groups as a result of this. Mm. Well, uh, yeah, that's right. I, I sometimes, and, and look, I'm, I'm, I'm not in those groups, obviously in the LGBTI community, but talking to some people that don't necessarily fit the, uh, uh, the the plain vanilla view of what an LGBTI person should should express, they're the sometimes the most repressed by this movement because, they, okay, they do identify um, uh, um, with some element of being LGBTI, but if they've got different views from what the, the zeitgeist is, they're yep. somewhat more ostracised yep. uh, than someone from the outside. Uh, and I, I, I just... It's, it's extremely unhealthy... Uh, to our to our to the dignity of individuals, and it's an it is inherently an anti-liberal mm. uh, position to have from often from people who otherwise think they're purporting to, to, to act in a liberal way. I completely agree, and I think it's been particularly harmful on young people. And whether they're in a, in the LGBTI grouping or a or a racial grouping or a religious grouping or any other, they're being taught that 
merely the existence of other people who disapprove or disagree with them or have different views about uh, the life that they live is harmful. Mm. And if they hear those views expressed in public, that that'll be even more harmful and that they will be damaged unto them as a result. And if you tell a young person that that's the case, well, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think one of the reasons why we're having real mental health problems with young people is, is exactly because of this. They're being told that just because there are other people out there who think differently to you, that you are being harmed. And it sets people up for failure and, and I think causes a lot of misery. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you have a view? I, I, I mean, I, I, you've just, you've got one child, you're yeah, one, one child yeah, one and they're not at school yet though. No, I, no, he's 15 months so old. So I, um, I've got five children and, and, and yeah, I, I am a little concerned sometimes uh, about the, the, the politically correct, what I'd call politically correct views that, that seemingly are taught sometimes these days about uh, gender identity mm-hmm. and, and, uh, um, introducing, I think, uh, uh, concepts to children that are too young to even even sometimes understand uh, these issues. Um, I, 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 I mean, I, I think we're in this interesting phase where we're trying to accept everybody in society, and that is a good thing. It's a good thing. And, and while we had a different view on marriage, mm. uh, you know, I absolutely support laws should not discriminate against people's sexuality, and that should all be fixed. I just had a different view of the definition of the word marriage. Mm. That there's, a, there's good developments here. But while we've made that good progress, um, we're then taking the, this giant leap in the way we define words uh, and, and long-standing concepts that, that do, doesn't necessarily seem to be adding to... Uh, uh, well, it's not based on a lot of evidence. It seems mm. to be based on a political ideology. Yep. And, and it's, it's not... It's, I'm concerned how it is polluting young children's mind. But do you have a perspective on... on this is a bit different than identity yeah. politics because this is... The strange thing about this is that you can choose any identity. That's right. Uh, at any time. Yep. But then the, the, the corresponding view is that you're, you know, if you're an LGBTI person, you're an LGBTI person for life. Yep. But apparently the other philosophy is you can just choose and go back and forth whenever you like. Yeah, I, I am worried about it and I agree with you. It's internally contradictory and I think that's, that's setting people up for failure. I, I know a, a couple of transgender people and I've met them ironically through conservative politics, whether it's the Liberal yeah, so, Party yeah, yeah. or the IPA. Yeah, yeah. And uh, knowing them and listening to them about their experience, they have not had easy lives. And I have a lot of compassion for people who um, feel that they were born in the wrong body and feel mm. that how they present in the world is not how they feel internally. That would be a horrible thing. Um, but equally, I think um, we, we shouldn't. I think that it, the introduction of politics into this is what's caused the real problem. Mm. What, what really should be a medical issue um, and an issue for individuals to decide uh, how they want to handle has become a political issue. And when you politicise things, something so personal as your identity in the world, uh, no wonder people are, are feeling really bruised by the public discussion that's happening. Mm. And uh, and it stops a kind of rational science-based discussion, medical-based discussion about these issues and how we can help people uh, who feel that way. I mean, it's fascinating. We started speaking about John Locke, mm. and now we're speaking about um, uh, safe schools. And, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure what John Locke's view would have been <laughs> on these issues. It's a very different world back then. Uh, but I wanted to come back to the more philosophical underpinnings of liberalism mm. and talk about some of the, the great um, economic philosophers in this stream yep. more recent times. You mentioned Adam Smith. That's mm. a long time ago. But you and I probably both grew up, I didn't ask you this, but you and I probably both grew up at the tail end of, I suppose, what would have been the Milton Friedman type mm. revolution, yep. uh, where yeah, the concepts of economic liberty uh, uh, pushed back against what was a quasi-democratic socialist yep. regimes in, in the West in the 1970s. And you had the rise of Reagan and Thatcher mm. uh, uh, and what became known as neoliberal policies, as you mm. said, across the world. 
how do you where where do you think things are at now? Because while while we were probably growing up, mm. it was moving in a more liberal, economically liberal direction. While trade was growing, the general general um, uh, um, initiative of governments, even left wing governments, often was to reduce regulation, open up competition. We're not really there now. So mm. what, what what do you how do you assess that right now? And what do you think is going to happen in the next few decades? Sometimes I wish I was a politician in the nineteen eighties. <laughs> uh, we literally had the wind at our. A backs. lot of people say we want to go back to the fifties. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, yeah. I, I would I would settle for, I would settle for the eighties. Yeah. Uh, there was deregulation. There was tax cuts. There was free trade. There was privatisation. There was lots of good things. Um, and and I think largely that consensus has held. But it, we are slipping back in some respects. Um, I, I think we are at the probably high point of free trade. Um, I think uh, any changes here are at risk going backwards, not forwards, and we have more regulation of trade um, given the way things are heading. And, and on regulation and red tape, I think we are um, heading down a path of, of a quite significant re-regulation of the economy. If you think about the changes that were made in Australia in the 80s and 90s on the deregulation of banking and the floating of the exchange rate and um, deregulation of financial services, what's happening right now is the re-regulation of financial services mm. uh, and some of the, the controls uh, that were put in place, that were taken away, then are being put back in place in a different form or a different way. And that's in response to very strong community demand um, coming out of the financial crisis, the Royal Commission that we had here. And really what's underlying it fundamentally is a lack of trust in institutions uh, where once people trusted their bank and their local Mm. bank manager and had faith in them because they were part of their community and they were their neighbour and they were their teammate on the footy team and they knew them, they now see them as remote uh, and inaccessible and and not trusted. And, And the community has demanded to replace that trust that they've lost in uh, corporations to be uh, with regulation. Mm. I'm not sure we're going to end up at a better place accumulatively at the at the end of that. I think uh, all the things we know about the limits of regulation and red tape are going to uh, rear their heads throughout this process. And I fear that we're going to spend decades fixing uh, the, the period that we're going through now. Well, a good example of what you're saying, I thought, was the, uh, the original recommendation in the Hain Royal Commission to put quite serious constraints on, on mortgage brokers... Mm. Uh, and, and as Adam Smith said, rarely do big businesses meet without conspiring to uh, uh, to reduce competition and, yep. and, and screw over. Well, I don't think he used the word screw over, but yeah. <laughs> um, um, put at disadvantage the consumer. And that was ex- like a classic example of that. Yep. Like that. That recommendation was lobbied for by the Commonwealth Bank. You could actually yep. read it in the, all, all the evidence that, that yep. Justice Hayne had, had referred to was the Commonwealth Bank submissions. Yep. Uh, and guess what? The Commonwealth Bank doesn't originate in many of its loans through mortgage brokers. Yep. And so it was right in this and commercial advantage. So, I mean, I've got that example, but do you think there's, there's other, other, other examples of that happening where this, this re-regulation of financial services is actually leading to reduced competition uh, and possibly worse consumer outcomes. I think unquestionably, if you hate big banks, then you should hate red tape and regulation. I should, I should point out to those listening in a more partisan way here, we didn't accept the Hain Royal Commission no. as a Liberal National Government. That's a tick for us. But yeah. go on, sorry, yeah. the more general point. Yeah, look, if you hate big banks, then you should hate red tape and regulation more than anything else because what regulation imposes on an industry is fixed costs that must be complied with by a business. Mm. And what do you do if you're a business and you face fixed costs? You want to get as big as possible so you can spread that cost as thinly as possible over as many customers yep. as possible. And so every time we add a new regulation, what we're doing is we're imposing a cost on a smaller bank, for example, but it, it applies to any 
any part of the economy that incentivizes them to merge with their uh, competitors mm. to get big as possible as quick as possible and and then have that protection because a new entrant that's starting from the ground floor has to comply with all the same regulations that mm. someone who's a big existing player already complies with. So it's often why we see in this place lobbyists walking the hall from big companies that are subject to regulation actually not being all that upset about some of that regulation because it has a, an effect mm. of deadening competition. And I think the best thing we could do in financial services is unleash as much of that competition as possible. I want alternatives to the banks for mm. people and perversely, um, I think we're going to get less of that. That is an excellent point. It's, it, it's something that should have been obvious to me, but I, I don't think I've quite thought of it like that. Um, I, I, I have this theory that one of the reasons for the uh, um, uh, deterioration in trust that people have with institutions is that they've seen uh, uh, the, the control they used to have over their local governments, local institutions, be centralised yep. to a high level. Usually I'm thinking of governments, but you made the point it's also happening in the business world as well. Yep. That, that the, it's hard to start up your own local bank or, or local mutual fund, etc., because of the layers of regulation that are exactly. imposed on it. Yep. And that separates people from uh, their, their businesses that they're interacting with and, and you know, will we'll have no other result than reducing their trust. I wanted to ask you to get back to the trade stuff, though, mm. too, because I can't leave you without asking about um, the rise of Donald Trump mm. and what has been a much more protectionist mm. uh, view from, from the United States. That's flowing through. I'll tell you a story I had with uh, when I was over in India last time. Um, the view of their Indian finance minister was very much, well, we don't want to have trade deficits any with anyone in the mm. world, and we run a trade deficit with Australia, so um, that's really bad. Mm. And I had to, well, in the discussion, sort of point out, well, you can't run trade surpluses with everybody. That, mm. that is an mm. impossibility. Yep. Uh, I have a big uh, trade, um, a trade so deficit personally with Woolworths. That's right. Uh, oh, yeah, they buy nothing exactly, from me at all, yeah. <laughs> um, but I buy a lot from them, uh, and that's I think right. it's a good relationship. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. We specialise, right? So this, it is the reincarnation of mercantilism. Mm-hmm. Um, for the listeners, that's the sort of view that you've got to kind of produce as much as possible internally in your economy. You want to minimise your, your imports and maximise your exports. But what... Do you think this is going to continue? And and I presume you're not a supporter of this, mm-hmm. but but do you think that's the spread is almost inevitable for a while until we all realise it's not the way and, and there's a swing back? Well, one of the challenges with free trade is it's it's counterintuitive. Uh, if you're trying to ex- explain the concept of free trade to someone, it doesn't sound right initially. It's been proven time and time again in the real world, but the, the idea of comparative advantage is particularly difficult for most people to intuitively understand. They just think... Um, well, of course, it would be better if we just produced things and sold something to everyone else. Uh, and, and, and the idea of specialisation and gains from trade is really hard one to sell. If what Donald Trump had done over the last couple of years was only to confront China in the way they've mm. confronted them, um, then I would be a big supporter of his trade policies and I would be happily defend them. Because I think it's very the confrontation with China is very warranted. They have been cheating on trade for a long time, whether that's through currency manipulation, intellectual property theft, uh, sub, illegal subsidies uh, under World Trade Organization rules. Uh, he's absolutely right to confront them on that. And, and other than by doing it with a blunt, strong mechanism by trade, you probably couldn't do it. But he's also doing it everywhere else in the world. He's doing it uh, to the Europeans, he's doing it to the Canadians, he's doing it to the Mexicans, happily hasn't done it to Australians. Uh, Ultimately, the people who are being impoverished by that are people 
who work in industries which export. Uh, farmers in the Midwest of the United States have been harder hit than anyone by the trade war. Uh, and people who work for multinational corporations where it's really important to have uh, really flexible movement of capital o- o- overseas. And so there have been job losses in the manufacturing industry in the United States because of the uncertainty in trade. Harley Davidson is one of the great examples where thousands of people have lost their job because of increasing trade barriers. That's not a good outcome that any government, particularly I think of a centre-right disposition, should want to see. So uh, we're, we're pushing up against that. Uh, Australia, thankfully, has so far maintained that strong free trade political consensus that the United States used to have in the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, but we're not immune from these kind of challenges too. And, uh, and I can easily see us, um, if a global event uh, tipped the balance, uh, going the other way as well. Well, we probably don't have time this evening to, to talk about this in, in huge detail, but I, I, I do think that one of the issues we've got here is that if you've got a competitive economy that has, that has um, competitive input costs in terms of electricity, labour, capital, flexibility... It's much easier to support and maintain free trade because you can compete against the world. Now, we were fortunate perhaps in the last 30 years that as we opened up our economy, and there was a bit of a dynamic relationship here, as we opened up our economy, we also made our financial services more efficient, uh, so our capital more efficient. We got down... Electricity prices actually fell. People forget that. But Mm. from 1990 to 2005, they fell significantly in Australia. So we made our business more competitive and they were able to compete on the world stage. Mm. But if now we've had 15 years probably of... You know, increased regulation, yep. higher electricity prices. There is this cost, particularly to a manufacturing sector now, of having to openly compete on the world mm-hmm. stage. That that is a, that is an issue. Yeah, uh, I completely and they agree. They go together, I think. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think that the really the fundamental driver of all of that is you know there's a lot of great things about almost 30 years of unbroken economic growth, but one of the negative things is that it, it breeds a sense of complacency that this will just continue, that this is the new normal, that reform is not mm-hmm. necessary to keep it going. Unfortunately, uh, we will probably learn the hard way mm-hmm. um, if we're not able to get those reforms, if we're not able to keep our costs down, as you say. Um, the world doesn't owe us anything. We have to earn it uh, on an equal and competitive basis. And uh, if we price ourselves out, uh, then we'll pay the price for that. In my pursuit to converge the Nationals Party, Mm. I do want to point out that it was the country party that was, it's, I think, the only political party in this place that was formed on a free trade yep. platform and basis. Uh, 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 and much it, better it, than it, the manufacturing-based United <laughs> Australia Party, particularly in my home state of Victoria, which was a shocking protectionist yes, institution. Well, you've got a lot to blame. <laughs> we Alfred do. Deacon started Correct. Well, but but, but uh, um, they moved away from that. Because John McEwen rightly made the point that well, once you start protecting some parts of the economy, well, you've got to protect all. And we needed the protection of the agricultural side because okay, our costs were higher because of the protection of the manufacturing side of the economy. And, and that's what I'm worried about, that mm. we're getting back to that stage, mm. that we're, if we protect renewable energy, uh, protect uh, um, some sections of our economy, then there'll be demands, equivalent demands. Well, we need protection as well uh, to offset that. And we'll be very much in a second best world very quickly. Mm -hmm. Look, can't disagree with that, but I think we also learnt the lessons of that protection all round. It was ultimately a failure. It ultimately came at the cost um, for everyone. Every Australian paid the cost of that. And I think one of the great things about your party and my party is that we learned the lessons of that, particularly in the 60s and 70s. And the the drives won that economic debate in our parties Mm -hmm. and we became, again, free enterprise, free trade parties. The only thing I'd say, too, about that history, I'd love to talk to you possibly about the history of economic policy one time, is we often, I think we too often say, you know, the economy was opened up in the 80s by Hawke King, mm. and, and they did a lot of important reforms. 
But I think it actually started back in the Menzies era when we removed export controls from iron ore uh, and some of the coal and commodity boards and what have you. That really helped open up us to Asia and open up that investment. No question. And then that ultimately led to pressure for those other reforms as well. So, look, we're getting to the end of our discussion. You've inspired me to come up with a new section on our podcasts. Uh, I thought we might try and do something regular. Um, and so we're going to have a section where what law would you get rid of? Because I think you'd have lots of ideas here. I do. But I want you to pick one yep. that you'd get rid of, and we might ask other yeah. guests in the future. Oh, I'm going to cheat slightly, and it's a provision in a law, but it's a particularly egregious one, and that's Section 18C of the Racial <laughs> Discrimination Act, uh, which is the law that was used against Andrew Bolt. It's the law that was used against Bill Leake and those poor students at Queensland University of Technology. Uh, it is an abomination, and it needs to go. That's uh, yep. That, that, that's gone off the radar a little bit in recent times. We did make some changes. Yeah, we, well, we no, sorry, we tried to, didn't we? Yeah, we, we, didn't we were successful through. in reforming the processes of the Human Rights yes. Commission so that what happened to those no. QT students can't happen again. But the law um, on the book stands as it was a few years ago, and so that's unfinished business in my yeah, view. Yeah, yep. No, fair point. That is true. We, I think, we did try and, and it failed in the Senate. Um, we don't think we weren't we weren't getting rid of it, but. No. Um, Respect your classical liberal position there <laughs> of getting rid of Section 18C. Well, thank you very much, James, uh, for coming in. I'd love to have you back sometime because, as we sort of alluded to there, there's a lot of issues we talk more about. Good luck with the, the fight, the good fight for classical liberalism, and thanks very much. Good man. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of Weatherboard and Iron. Don't forget to subscribe. You can do that on Apple Podcasts or searching your favourite podcast app. You can also go to weatherboardandiron.com.au for links there. And please share with your friends uh, so we can have civil, respectful, deep and meaningful conversations about modern politics.